Section 32 of London Labour and the London Poor, Volume 2, by Henry Mayhew. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Of the Dustmen of London. Dust and rubbish accumulate in houses from a variety of causes, but principally from the residuum of fires, the white ash and cinders, or small fragments of unconsumed coke, giving rise to by far the greater quantity. Some notion of the vast amount of this refuse annually produced in London may be formed from the fact that the consumption of coal in the metropolis is, according to the official returns, 3,500,000 tonnes per annum, which is at the rate of a little more than 11 tonnes per house. The poorer families, it is true, do not burn more than two tonnes in the course of the year, but then many such families reside in the same house, and hence the average will appear in no way excessive. Now the ashes and cinders arising from this enormous consumption of coal would, it is evident, if allowed to lie scattered about in such a place as London, render ere long not only the back streets, but even the important thoroughfares, filthy and impassable. Upon the officers of the various parishes, therefore, has devolved the duty of seeing that the refuse of the fuel consumed throughout London is removed almost as fast as produced. This they do by entering into an agreement for the clearance of the dustbins of the parishioners, as often as required, with some person who possesses all necessary appliances for the purpose, such as horses, carts, baskets and shovels, together with a plot of waste ground whereon to deposit the refuse. The persons with whom this agreement is made are called dust contractors, and are generally men of considerable wealth. The collection of dust is now, more properly speaking, the removal of it. The collection of an article implies the voluntary seeking after it, and this the dustmen can hardly be said to do, for though they parade the streets shouting for the dust as they go, they do so rather to fulfil a certain duty they have undertaken to perform than in any expectation of profit to be derived from the sale of the article. Formerly the custom was otherwise, but then, as will be seen hereafter, the residuum of the London fuel was far more valuable. Not many years ago it was the practice for the various master dustmen to send in their tenders to the vestry on a certain day appointed for the purpose offering to pay a considerable sum yearly to the parish authorities for liberty to collect the dust from the several houses. The sum formerly paid to the parish of Shadwell, for instance, though not a very extensive one, amounted to between £400 or £500 per annum. But then there was an immense demand for the article, and the contractors were unable to furnish a sufficient supply from London. Ships were frequently freighted with it from other parts especially from Newcastle and the northern ports, and at that time it formed an article of considerable international commerce, the price being from 15 shillings to a pound per children. Of late years, however, the demand has fallen off greatly, while the supply has been progressively increasing, owing to the extension of the metropolis, so that the contractors have not only declined paying anything for liberty to collect it, but now stipulate to receive a certain sum for the removal of it. It need hardly be stated that the parishes always employ the man who requires the least money for the performance of what has now become a matter of duty rather than an object of desire. Some idea may be formed of the change which has taken place in this business from the fact that the aforesaid parish of Shadwell, which formerly received the sum of £450 per annum, for liberty to collect the dust, now pays the contractor the sum of £240 per annum for its removal. The Court of Sewers of the City of London, in 1846, through the advice of Mr Cochrane, the President of the National Philanthropic Association, were able to obtain from the contractors the sum of £5,000 for liberty to clear away the dirt from the streets and the dust from the bins and houses in that district. The year following, however, the contractors entered into a combination and came to a resolution not to bid so high for the privilege. The result was that they obtained their contracts at an expense of £2,200. 
by acting on the same principle in the year after, they not only offered no premium whatever for the contract, but the city commissioners of sewers were obliged to pay them the sum of £300 for removing the refuse, and at present the amount paid by the city is as much as £4,900. This is divided among four great contractors, and would, if equally apportioned, give them £1,250 each. I subjoin a list of the names of the principal contractors and the parishes for which they are engaged. For four divisions of the city, the contractors Reading, Rook, J. Sinnott and J. Gold. Finsbury Square, J. Gold. St. Luke's, H. Dodd. Shoreditch, H. Dodd. Norton Fulgate, J. Gold. Bethnal Green, E. Newman. Hoburn, Pratt and Sewell. Hatton Garden, Pratt and Sewell. Islington, Stroud Brickmaker. St. Martin's, William Sinnott, Jr. St. Mary Lee Strand, J. Gore. St. Sepulchre, J. Gore. Savoy, J. Gore. St. Clement Danes, Rook. St. James's Clerkenwell, H. Dodd. St. John's Ditto, J. Gold. St. Margaret's Westminster, W. Hearn. St. John's Ditto, Stapleton and Holdsworth. Lambeth, W. Hearn. Chelsea, C. Humphreys. St. Marylebone, J. Gore. Blackfriars Bridge, Jenkins. St. Paul's Covent Garden, W. Sinnott. Piccadilly, H. Tame. Regent Street and Pall Mall, W. Ridding. St. George's Hanover Square, H. Tame. Paddington, C. Humphreys. Camden Town, Milton. St. Pacras, South West Division, W. Stapleton. Southampton Estate, C. Starkey. Skinner's Ditto, H. North. Brewer's Ditto, C. Starkey. Cromer Ditto, C. Starkey. Calthorpe Ditto, C. Starkey. Bedford Ditto, Gore. Doughty Ditto, Martin. Union Ditto, J. Gore. Foundling Ditto, Pratt and Sewell. Harrison Ditto, Martin. St. Anne's Soho, J. Gore. Whitechapel, Parsons. Goswell Street, Reading. Commercial Road East, J. Sinnott. Mile End, Newman. Borough, Hearn. Bermondsey, The Parish. Kensington, H. Tame. St. Giles in the Fields and St. George's, Bloomsbury, Reading. Shadwell, Westley. St. George's in the East, Westley. Battlebridge, Starkey. Berkeley Square, Clutterbuck. St. George's Pimlico, Reading. Woods and Forests, Reading. St. Botolph, Westley. St. John's Wapping, Westley. Somerstown, H. North. Kentish Town, J. Gore. Liberty of the Rolls, Pratt and Sewell. Edward Square, Kensington, C. Humphreys. All the metropolitan parishes now pay the contractors various amounts for the removal of the dust, and I am credibly informed that there is a system of underletting and jobbing in the dust contracts extensively carried on. The contractor for a certain parish is often a different person from the master doing the work, and who is unknown in the contract. Occasionally the work would appear to be subdivided and underlet a second time. The parish of St Pancras is split into no less than 21 districts, each district having a separate and independent board, who are generally at war with each other and make separate contracts for their several divisions. This is also the case in other large parishes, and these and other considerations confirm me in the conclusion that of large and small dust contractors, job masters and middlemen, of one kind or the other, throughout the metropolis, there cannot be less than the number I have stated, 90. With the exception of Bermondsey, there are no parishes who remove their own dust. It is difficult to arrive at any absolute statement as to the gross amount paid by the different parishes for the removal of the entire dust of the metropolis. From Shadwell, the contractor, as we have seen, 
receives two hundred and fifty pounds. From the city, the four contractors receive as much as five thousand pounds. But there are many small parishes in London which do not pay above a tithe of the last-mentioned sum. Let us therefore assume that one with another the several metropolitan parishes pay £200 a year each to the dust contractor. According to the returns before given, there are 176 parishes in London. Hence, the gross amount paid for the removal of the entire dust of the metropolis will be between £30,000 and £40,000 per annum. The removal of the dust throughout the metropolis is therefore carried on by a number of persons called contractors, who undertake, as has been stated, for a certain sum, to cart away the refuse from the houses, as frequently as the inhabitants desire it. To ascertain the precise numbers of these contractors is a task of much greater difficulty than might at first be conceived. The London Post Office Directory gives the following number of tradesmen connected with the removal of refuse from the houses and streets of the metropolis. Dustmen, 9. Scavengers, 10. Nightmen, 14. Sweeps, 32. But these numbers are obviously incomplete, for even a cursory passenger through London must have noticed a greater number of names upon the various dust carts to be met with in the streets than are here set down. A dust contractor who has been in the business upwards of twenty years stated that, from his knowledge of the trade, he should suppose that at present there might be about eighty or ninety contractors in the metropolis. Now, according to the returns before given, there are within the limits of the Metropolitan Police District 176 parishes, and comparing this with my informant's statement, that many persons contract for more than one parish, of which indeed he himself is an instance, there remains but little reason to doubt the correctness of his supposition, that there are in all between 80 and 90 dust contractors, large and small, connected with the metropolis. Assuming the aggregate number to be 88, there would be one contractor to every two parishes. These dust contractors are likewise the contractors for the cleansing of the streets, except where that duty is performed by the street orderlies. They are also the persons who undertake the emptying of the cesspools in their neighbourhood. The latter operation, however, is effected by an arrangement between themselves and the landlords of the premises, and forms no part of their parochial contracts. At the office of the street orderlies in Leicester Square, they have knowledge of only 30 contractors connected with the metropolis, but this is evidently defective, and refers to the large masters alone, leaving out of all consideration, as it does, the host of small contractors scattered up and down the metropolis, who are able to employ only two or three carts and six or seven men each, many of such small contractors being merely master sweeps who have managed to get on a little in the world, and who are now able to contract in a small way for the removal of dust, street sweepings, and night soil. Moreover, many of even the great contractors, being unwilling to venture upon an outlay of capital for carts, horses, and so on, when their contract is only for a year, and may pass at the end of that time into the hands of any one who may underbid them, many such, I repeat, are in the habit of underletting a portion of their contract to others possessing the necessary appliances, or of entering into partnership with them. The latter is the case in the parish of Shadwell, where a person having carts and horses shares the profits with the original contractor. The agreement made on such occasions is of course a secret, though the practice is by no means uncommon. Indeed, there is so much secrecy maintained concerning all matters connected with this business that the inquiry is beset with every possible difficulty. The gentleman who communicated to me the amount paid by the parish of Shadwell, and who informed me, moreover, that parishes in his neighbourhood paid twice and three times more than Shadwell did, hinted to me the difficulties I should experience at the commencement of my inquiry, and I have certainly found his opinion correct to the letter. I have ascertained that in one yard intimidation was resorted to, and the men were threatened with instant dismissal if they gave me any information but such as was calculated to mislead. 
I soon discovered, indeed, that it was impossible to place any reliance on what the contractors said, and here I may repeat that the indisputable result of my inquiries has been to meet with far more deception and equivocation from employers, generally, than from the employed. Working men have little or no motive for misstating their wages. They know well that the ordinary rates of remuneration for their labour are easily ascertainable from other members of the trade, and seldom or never object to produce accounts of their earnings, whenever they have been in the habit of keeping such things. With employers, however, the case is far different. To seek to ascertain from them the profits of their trade is to meet with evasion and prevarication at every turn. They seem to feel that their gains are dishonestly large, and hence resort to every means to prevent them being made public. That I have met with many honourable exceptions to this rule, I most cheerfully acknowledge. But that the majority of tradesmen are neither so frank, communicative, or truthful as the men in their employ, the whole of my investigations go to prove. I have already, in the Morning Chronicle, recorded the character of my interviews with an eminent Jew slop tailor, an army clothier, and an enterprising free-trade staymaker, a gentleman who subscribed his one hundred guineas to the league. And I must in candour confess that now, after two years' experience, I have found the industrious poor a thousandfold more voracious than the trading rich. With respect to the amount of business done by these contractors, or gross quantity of dust collected by them in the course of the year, it would appear that each employs on an average about twenty men, which makes the number of men employed as dustmen throughout the streets of London amount to 1,800. This, as has been previously stated, is grossly at variance with the number given in the census of 1841, which computes the dustmen in the metropolis at only 254. But, as I said before, I have long ceased to place confidence in the government returns on such subjects. According to the above estimate of 254, and deducting from this number the 88 master dustmen, there would be only 166 labouring men to empty the 300,000 dustbins of London. And as these men always work in couples, it follows that every two dustmen would have to remove the refuse from about 3,600 houses, so that, assuming each bin to require emptying once every six weeks, they would have to cart away the dust from 2,400 houses every month, or 600 every week, which is at the rate of 100 a day, and as each dustbin contains about half a load, it would follow that at this rate each cart would have to collect 50 loads of dust daily, whereas five loads is the average day's work. Computing the London dust contractors at 90, and the inhabited houses at 300,000, it follows that each contractor would have 3,333 houses to remove the refuse from. Now it has been calculated that the ashes and cinders alone from each house average about three loads per annum, so that each contractor would have, in round numbers, 10,000 loads of dust to remove in the course of the year. I find from inquiries that every two dustmen carry to the yard about five loads a day, or about 1,500 loads in the course of the year, so that at this rate there must be between six and seven carts, and twelve and fourteen collectors employed by each master. But this is exclusive of the men employed in the yards. In one yard that I visited, there were fourteen people busily employed. Six of these were women, who were occupied in sifting, and they were attended by three men who shoveled the dust into their sieves, and the foreman who was hard at work loosening and dragging down the dust from the heap, ready for the fillers in. Besides these, there were two carts and four men engaged in conveying the sifted dust to the barges alongside the wharf. At a larger dust-yard that formerly stood on the banks of the Regent's Canal, I am informed that there were sometimes as many as 127 people at work. It is but a small yard, indeed, which has not 30 to 40 labourers connected with it. 
The lesser dust-yards have generally from four to eight sifters, and six or seven carts. There must therefore be employed, in even a small yard, twelve collectors or cartmen, six sifters, and three fillers-in, besides the foreman or four women, making altogether twenty-two persons, so that, computing the contractors at ninety, and allowing twenty men to be employed by each, there would be 1,800 men thus occupied in the metropolis, which appears to be very near the truth. One who has been all his life connected with the business estimated that there must be about 10 dustmen to each metropolitan parish, large and small. In Marlebun, he believed there were 18 dust carts, with two men to each, out every day. In some small parishes, however, two men are sufficient. There would be more men employed, he said, but some masters contracted for two or three parishes, and so kept the same men going, working them hard, and enlarging their regular rounds. Calculating then that ten men are employed to each of the 176 metropolitan parishes, we have 1,760 dustmen in London. The suburban parishes, my informant told me, were as well dustmaned as any he knew, for the residents in such parts were more particular about their dust than in busier places. It is curious to observe how closely the number of men engaged in the collection of the dust from the coals burnt in London agrees, according to the above estimate, with the number of men engaged in delivering the coals to be burnt. The coal whippers, who discharge the colliers, are about 1,800, and the coal porters, who carry the coals from the barges to the merchants' wagons, are about the same in number. The amount of residuum from coal after burning cannot of course be equal either in bulk or weight to the original substance, but considering that the collection of the dust is a much slower operation than the delivery of the coals, the difference is easily accounted for. We may arrive approximately at the quantity of dust annually produced in London in the following manner. The consumption of coal in London per annum is about 3,500,000 tonnes, exclusive of what is brought to the metropolis per rail. Coals are made up of the following component parts, namely, 1. The inorganic and fixed elements, that is to say the ashes, or the bones as it were, of the fossil trees, which cannot be burnt. 2. Coke, or the residuary carbon, after being deprived of the volatile matter. 3. The volatile matter itself, given off during combustion, in the form of flame and smoke. The relative proportions of these materials in the various kinds of coals are as follows. Cannel or gas coals, 40-60% to 60 carbon, 60-40% to 40 volatile, 10% ashes. Newcastle or house coals, 57% carbon, 37% volatile, 5% ashes. Lancashire and Yorkshire coals, 50-60% to 60 carbon, 35-40% to 40 volatile, 4% ashes. South Welsh or steam coals, 81-85% to 85 carbon, 11-15% to 15 volatile. 3% ashes. Anthracite or stone coals, 80 to 95% carbon, 0% volatile, a little, a little percent ashes. In the metropolis, the Newcastle coal is chiefly used, and this we perceive yields 5% ashes and about 57% carbon, but a considerable part of the carbon is converted into carbonic acid during combustion. If therefore we assume that two-thirds of the carbon are thus consumed, and that the remaining third remains behind in the form of cinder, we shall have about 25% of dust from every tonne of coal. On inquiry of those who have had long experience in this matter, I find that a tonne of coal may be fairly said on an average to yield about one-fourth its weight in dust. Hence the gross amount of dust annually produced in London would be 900,000 tonnes, or about 3 tonnes per house per annum. It is impossible to obtain any definite statistics on this part of the subject, 
not one in every ten of the contractors keeps any account of the amount that comes into the yard. An intelligent and communicative gentleman, whom I consulted on this matter, could give me no information on this subject that was in any way satisfactory. I have, however, endeavoured to check the preceding estimate in the following manner. There are in London upwards of 300,000 inhabited houses, and each house furnishes a certain quota of dust to the general stock. I have ascertained that an average-sized house will produce in the course of a year about three cartloads of dust, while each cart holds about forty bushels, baskets, what the dustmen call a children. There are, of course, many houses in the metropolis which furnish three and four times this amount of dust. But against these may be placed the vast preponderance of small and poor houses in London and the suburbs, where there is not one quarter of the quantity produced, owing to the small amount of fuel consumed. Estimating, then, the average annual quantity of dust from each house at three loads, or children's, and the houses at three hundred thousand, it follows that the gross quantity collected throughout the metropolis will be about nine hundred thousand children's per annum. The next part of the subject is, what becomes of this vast quantity of dust, to what use it is applied. The dust thus collected is used for two purposes, one, as a manure for land of a peculiar quality, and two, for making bricks. The fine portion of the house dust, called soil, and separated from the breeze, or coarser portion, by sifting, is found to be peculiarly fitted for what is called breaking up a marshy healthy soil at its first cultivation, owing not only to the dry nature of the dust, but to its possessing, in an eminent degree, a highly separating quality, almost if not quite equal to sand. In former years the demand for this finer dust was very great, and barges were continually in the river waiting their turn to be loaded with it for some distant part of the country. At that time the contractors were unable to supply the demand, and easily got one pound per children for as much as they could furnish, and then, as I have stated, many ships were in the habit of bringing cargoes of it from the north, and of realising a good profit on the transaction. Of late years, however, and particularly, I am told, since the repeal of the corn laws, this branch of the business has dwindled to nothing. The contractors say that the farmers do not cultivate their land now as they used. It will not pay them, and instead, therefore, of bringing fresh land into tillage, and especially such as requires this sort of manure, they are laying down that which they previously had in cultivation, and turning it into pasture-grounds. It is principally on this account, say the contractors, that we cannot sell the dust we collect so well or so readily as formerly. There are, however, some cargoes of the dust still taken, particularly to the lowlands in the neighbourhood of Barking, and such other places in the vicinity of the metropolis as are enabled to realise a greater profit, by growing for the London markets. Nevertheless, the contractors are obliged now to dispose of the dust at two shillings sixpence per children, and sometimes less. The finer dust is also used to mix with the clay for making bricks, and barge loads are continually shipped off for this purpose. The fine ashes are added to the clay in the proportion of one-fifth ashes to four-fifths clay, or sixty chaldrons to two hundred and forty cubic yards, which is sufficient to make one hundred thousand bricks, where much sand is mixed with the clay a smaller proportion of ashes may be used. This quantity requires also the addition of about fifteen chaldrons, or if mild of about twelve chaldrons, of breeze to aid the burning. The ashes are made to mix with the clay by collecting it into a sort of reservoir fitted up for the purpose. Water in great quantities is let in upon it, and it is then stirred till it resembles a fine thin paste, in which state the dust easily mingles with every part of it. In this condition it is left till the water either soaks into the earth, or goes off by evaporation, when the bricks are moulded in the usual manner, the dust forming a component part of them. The ashes, or cindered matter, which are thus dispersed throughout the substance of the clay, 
become in the process of burning gradually ignited and consumed but the breeze from the french briser to break or crush that is to say the coarser portion of the coal ash is likewise used in the burning of the bricks the small spaces left along the lowest courses of the bricks in the kiln or clamp are filled with breeze and a thick layer of the same material is spread on the top of the kilns when full. Frequently the breeze is mixed with small coals, and after having been burnt, the ashes are collected and then mixed with the clay to form new bricks. The highest price at present given for breeze is three shillings per ton. The price of the dust used by the brickmakers has likewise been reduced. This the contractors account for by saying that there are fewer brick fields than formerly near London, as they have been nearly all built over. They assert that while the amount of dust and cinders has increased proportionately to the increase of the houses, the demand for the article has decreased in a like ratio, and that moreover, the greater portion of the bricks now used in London for the new buildings come from other quarters. Such dust, however, as the contractors sell to the brickmakers, they in general undertake, for a certain sum, to cart to the brickfields, though it often happens that the brickmakers' carts, coming into town with their loads of bricks to new buildings, call on their return at the dust-yards, and carry thence a load of dust or cinders back, and so save the price of cartage. But during the operation of sifting the dust, Many things are found which are useless for either manure or brick-making, such as oyster-shells, old bricks, old boots and shoes, old tin kettles, old rags and bones, and so on. These are used for various purposes. The bricks and so on are sold for sinking beneath foundations, where a thick layer of concrete is spread over them. Many old bricks, too, are used in making new roads, especially where the land is low and marshy. The old tin is sold to trunk-makers to form the japanned fastenings for the corners of their boxes, as well as to other persons who remanufacture it into a variety of articles. The old shoes are sold to the London shoemakers, who use them as stuffing between the insole and the outer one. But by far the greater quantity is sold to the manufacturers of Prussian blue, that substance being formed out of refuse animal matter. The rags and bones are of course disposed of at the usual places, the marine store shops. A dust heap, therefore, may be briefly said to be composed of the following things, which are severally applied to the following uses. 1. Soil, or fine dust, sold to brickmakers for making bricks, and to farmers for manure, especially for clover. 2. Breeze, or cinders, sold to brickmakers for burning bricks. 3. Rags, bones and old metal, sold to marine store dealers. 4. Old tin and iron vessels, sold to trunk makers for clamps and so on. 5. Old bricks and oyster shells, sold to builders for sinking foundations and forming roads. 6. Old boots and shoes, sold to Prussian blue manufacturers. 7. Money and jewellery, kept or sold to Jews. The dust yards, or places where the dust is collected and sifted, are generally situated in the suburbs, and they may be found all round London, sometimes occupying open spaces adjoining back streets and lanes, and surrounded by the low mean houses of the poor. Frequently, however, they cover a large extent of ground in the fields, and there the dust is piled up to a great height in a conical heap, and having much the appearance of a volcanic mountain. The reason why the dust heaps are confined principally to the suburbs is that more space is to be found in the outskirts than in a thickly peopled and central locality. Moreover, the fear of indictments for nuisance has had considerable influence in the matter, for it was not unusual for the yards in former times to be located within the boundaries of the city. They are now, however, scattered round London, and always placed as near as possible to the river, or to some canal communicating therewith. In St. George's, Shadwell, Ratcliffe, Limehouse, Poplar and Blackwall on the north side of the Thames, and in Redruth, Bermondsey, 
and Rothereth on the south, they are to be found near the Thames. The object of this is that by far the greater quantity of the soil or ashes is conveyed in sailing barges, holding from 70 to 100 tons each, to Feversham, Sittingbourne, and other places in Kent, which are the great brick-making manufactories for London. These barges come up invariably loaded with bricks and take home in return a cargo of soil. Other dust-yards are situated contiguous to the Regents and the Surrey Canal, and for the same reason as above stated, for the convenience of water-carriage. Moreover, adjoining the Limehouse Cut, which is a branch of the Lee River, other dust-yards may be found, and again, travelling to the opposite end of the metropolis, we discover them not only at Paddington, on the banks of the canal, but at Maiden Lane, in a similar position. Some time since, there was an immense dust-heap in the neighbourhood of the Grey's Inn Lane, which sold for £20,000, but that was in the days when fifteen shillings and one pound per chaldron could easily be procured for the dust. According to the present rate, not a tithe of that amount could have been realised upon it. A visit to any of the large metropolitan dust-yards is far from uninteresting. Near the centre of the yard rises the highest heap, composed of what is called the soil, or finer portion of the dust used for manure. Around this heap are numerous lesser heaps, consisting of the mixed dust and rubbish carted in and shot down previous to sifting. Among these heaps are many women and old men with sieves made of iron, all busily engaged in separating the breeze from the soil. There is likewise another large heap in some other part of the yard, composed of the cinders or breeze, waiting to be shipped off to the brickfields. The whole yard seems alive, some sifting and others shovelling the sifted soil onto the heap, while every now and then the dust carts return to discharge their loads, and proceed again on their rounds for a fresh supply. Cocks and hens keep up a continual scratching and cackling among the heaps, and numerous pigs seem to find great delight in rooting incessantly about after the garbage and offal collected from the houses and markets. In a dust-yard lately visited, the sifters formed a curious sight. They were almost up to their middle in dust, ranged in a semicircle in front of that part of the heap which was being worked. Each had before her a small mound of soil which had fallen through her sieve and formed a sort of embankment behind which she stood. The appearance of the entire group at their work was most peculiar. Their coarse, dirty cotton gowns were tucked up behind them, their arms were bared above their elbows, their black bonnets crushed and battered, like those of fishwomen. Over their gowns they wore a strong leathern apron, extending from their necks to the extremities of their petticoats, while over this again was another leathern apron, shorter, thickly padded, and fastened by a stout string or a strap round the waist. In the process of their work they pushed the sieve from them and drew it back again with apparent violence, striking it against the outer leathern apron with such force that it produced each time a hollow sound, like a blow on the tenor drum. All the women present were middle-aged, with the exception of one who was very old, sixty-eight years of age, she told me, and had been at the business from a girl. She was the daughter of a dustman, the wife or woman of a dustman, and the mother of several young dustmen, sons and grandsons, all at work at the dust-yards at the east end of the metropolis. We now come to speak of the labourers engaged in collecting, sifting, or shipping off the dust of the metropolis. The dustmen, scavengers, and nightmen are to a certain extent the same people. The contractors generally agree with the various parishes to remove both the dust from the houses and the mud from the streets, and the men in their employ being indiscriminately engaged in these two diverse occupations, collecting the dust today and often cleansing the streets on the morrow, are designated either dustmen or scavengers, according to their particular avocation at the moment. The case is somewhat different, however, with respect to the nightmen. There is no such thing as a contract with the parish for removing the night soil. This is done by private agreement with the landlord of the premises whence the soil has to be removed. When a cesspool requires emptying, the occupying tenant communicates with the landlord, 
who makes an arrangement with a dust contractor or sweep nightman for this purpose. This operation is totally distinct from the regular or daily labour of the dust contractor's men, who receive extra pay for it. Sometimes one set go out at night and sometimes another, according either to the selection of the master or the inclination of the men. There are, however, some dustmen who have never been at work as nightmen and could not be induced to do so from an invincible antipathy to the employment. Still, such instances are few, for the men generally go whenever they can and occasionally engage in night work for employers unconnected with their masters. It is calculated that there are some hundreds of men employed nightly in the removal of the night soil of the metropolis during the summer and autumn, and as these men have often to work at dust collecting or cleansing the streets on the following day, it is evident that the same persons cannot be thus employed every night. Accordingly, the ordinary practice is for the dustmen to take it in turns, thus allowing each set to be employed every third night, and to have two nights rest in the interim. The men, therefore, who collect the dust on one day may be cleaning the streets on the next, especially during wet weather, and engaged at night perhaps twice during the week in removing night soil, so that it is difficult to arrive at any precise notion as to the number of persons engaged in any one of these branches per se. But these labourers not only work indiscriminately at the collection of dust, the cleansing of the streets, or the removal of night soil, but they are employed almost as indiscriminately at the various branches of the dust business. With this qualification, however, that few men apply themselves continuously to any one branch of the business. The labourers employed in a dust yard may be divided into two classes, those paid by the contractor and those paid by the foreman or forewoman of the dust heap, commonly called hillman or hillwoman. They are as follows. Class 1. Labourers paid by the contractors. Or 1. Yard foreman or superintendent. This duty is often performed by the master, especially in small contracts. 2. Carters or dust collectors. These are called fillers and carriers, from the practice of one of the men who go out with the cart filling the basket and the other carrying it on his shoulder to the vehicle. 3. Loaders of carts in the dust yard for shipment. 4. Carriers of cinders to the cinder heap or bricks to the brick heap. 5. Foremen or forewomen of the heap. Class 2. Labourers paid by the hillman or hillwoman. 1. Sifters, who are generally women and mostly the wives or concubines of the dustmen, but sometimes the wives of badly paid labourers. 2. Fillers in or shovelers of dust into the sieves of the sifters, one man being allowed to every two or three women. 3. Carriers of bones, rags, metal and other perquisites to the various heaps. These are mostly children of the dustmen. A medium-sized dust-yard will employ about twelve collectors, three fillers in, six sifters, and one foreman or forewoman, while a large yard will afford work to about 150 people. There are four different modes of payment prevalent among the several labourers employed at the metropolitan dust-yards, one by the day, two by the piece or load, three by the lump, four by perquisites. First, the foreman of the yard, where the master does not perform this duty himself, is generally one of the regular dustmen, picked out by the master for this purpose. He is paid the sum of two shillings sixpence per day, or fifteen shillings per week. In large yards there are sometimes two and even three yard foremen at the same rate of wages. Their duty is merely to superintend the work. They do not labour themselves, and their exemption in this respect is considered and indeed looked on by themselves, as a sort of premium for good services. Second, the carters or collectors are generally paid ninepence per load for every load they bring into the yard. This is, of course, piecework, for the more hours the men work, the more loads will they be enabled to bring, and the more pay will they receive. There are some yards where the carters get only sixpence per load, as, for instance, at Paddington, 
The Paddington men, however, are not considered inferior workmen to the rest of their fellows, but merely to be worse paid. In 1826, or 25 years ago, the carters had one shilling sixpence per load, but at that time the contractors were able to get a pound per children for the soil and breeze or cinders. Then it began to fall in value, and according to the decrease in the price of these commodities, so have the wages of the dust collectors been reduced. It will be at once seen that the reduction in the wages of the dustmen bears no proportion to the reduction in the price of soil and cinders, but it must be borne in mind that whereas the contractors formerly paid large sums for liberty to collect the dust, they now are paid large sums to remove it. This in some measure helps to account for the apparent disproportion, and tends perhaps to equalise the matter. The carters, therefore, have fourpence halfpenny each per load when best paid. They consider from four to six loads a good day's work, for where the contract is large, extending over several parishes, they often have to travel a long way for a load. It thus happens that while the men employed by the Whitechapel contractor can, when doing their utmost, manage to bring only four loads a day to the yard, which is situated in a place called the Ruins, in Lower Shadwell. The men employed by the Shadwell contractor can easily get eight or nine loads in a day. Five loads are about an average day's work, and this gives them one shilling tenpence halfpenny per day each, or eleven shillings threepence per week. In addition to this, the men have their perquisites in aid of wages. The collectors are in the habit of getting beer, or money in lieu thereof, at nearly all the houses from which they remove the dust, the public being thus in a manner compelled to make up the rate of wages, which should be paid by the employer, so that what is given to benefit the men really goes to the master, who invariably reduces the wages to the precise amount of the perquisites obtained. This is the main evil of the perquisite system of payment, a system of which the mode of paying waiters may be taken as the special type. As an instance of the injurious effects of this mode of payment in connection with the London dustmen, the collectors are forced, as it were, to extort from the public that portion of their fair earnings of which their master deprives them. Hence, how can we wonder they make it a rule when they receive neither beer nor money from a house to make as great a mess as possible the next time they come, scattering the dust and cinders about in such a manner that, sooner than have any trouble with them, people mostly give them what they look for. One of the most intelligent men with whom I have spoken gave me the following account of his perquisites for the last week, namely, Monday, fivepence halfpenny, Tuesday, sixpence, Wednesday, fourpence halfpenny, Thursday, sevenpence, Friday, fivepence halfpenny, and Saturday, fivepence. This he received in money, and was independent of beer. He had on the same week drawn five loads each day to the yard, which made his gross earnings for the week, wages and perquisites together, to be fourteen shillings and a halfpenny, which he considers to be a fair average of his weekly earnings as connected with dust. Third, the loaders of the carts for shipment are the same persons as those who collect the dust, but thus employed for the time being. The pay for this work is by the piece also, tuppence per children between four persons being the usual rate, or a halfpenny per man. The men engaged at this work have no perquisites. The barges into which they shoot the soil or breeze, as the case may be, hold from fifty to seventy children's, and they consider the loading of one of these barges a good day's work. The average cargo is about sixty children's, which gives them two shillings sixpence per day, or somewhat more than their average earnings when collecting. Fourth, the carriers of cinders to the cinder heap. I have mentioned that, ranged round the sifters in the dust yard, are a number of baskets into which are put the various things found among the dust, some of these being the property of the master, and others the perquisites of the hillman or woman, as the case may be. The cinders and old bricks are the property of the master, and to remove them to their proper heaps, boys are employed by him at one shilling per day. 
These boys are almost universally the children of dustmen and sifters at work in the yard, and thus not only help to increase the earnings of the family, but qualify themselves to become the dustmen of a future day. Fifth, the hillman or hillwoman. The hillman enters into an agreement with the contractor to sift all the dust in the yard throughout the year at so much per load and perquisites. The usual sum per load is sixpence, nor have I been able to ascertain that any of these people undertake to do it at a less price. Such is the amount paid by the contractor for Whitechapel. The perquisites of the hillman or hillwoman are rags, bones, pieces of old metal, old tin or iron vessels, old boots and shoes, and one half of the money, jewellery or other valuables that may be found by the sifters. The hillman or hillwoman employs the following persons and pays them at the following rates. First, the sifters are paid one shilling per day when employed, but the employment is not constant. The work cannot be pursued in wet weather, and the services of the sifters are required only when a large heap has accumulated, as they can sift much faster than the dust can be collected. The employment is therefore precarious. The payment has not, for the last thirty years at least, been more than one shilling per day, but the perquisites were greater. They formerly were allowed one half of whatever was found. Of late years, however, the hillman has gradually reduced the perquisites, first one thing and then another, until the only one they have now remaining is half of whatever money or other valuable article may be found in the process of sifting. These valuables the sifters often pocket, if able to do so unperceived, but if discovered in the attempt, they are immediately discharged. Second, the fillers-in or shovelers of dust into the sieves of sifters are in general any poor fellows who may be straggling about in search of employment. They are sometimes, however, the grown-up boys of dustmen, not yet permanently engaged by the contractor. These are paid two shillings per day for their labour, but they are considered more as casualty men, though it often happens, if hands are wanted, that they are regularly engaged by the contractors and become regular dustmen for the remainder of their lives. Third, the little fellows, the children of the dustmen, who follow their mothers to the yard and help them to pick rags, bones and so on out of the sieve and put them into the baskets, as soon as they are able to carry a basket between two of them to the separate heaps, are paid threepence or fourpence per day for this work by the hillman. End of section 32